Yo, what's up you guys? Just another introduction before we get into this week's episode. I'd really like to thank you all for listening to last week's first episode with Frank Thompson, and I appreciate all the love and the support, and especially the feedback. Um, I look forward to creating better content and better quality sound over time, and that comes with you guys giving me feedback so I can always improve my entertainment experience. And don't forget now, Prodigy Podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts. All you have to look up is just Prodigy Podcast on the Apple Podcast app. If you don't already have it downloaded on your phone, please download it. It's completely free. But what are we waiting for? Let's get into it. And we are back now with the second episode of Prodigy Podcast. Last week, we talked with Frank Thompson, who is a future tennis star, but this but this week, we're going on a different path. Today, we're talking with John Byers. Now, John Byers is a former Converse marketing director, and he also played college basketball at Virginia Tech, and he has tons and tons of stories. He worked with people like Magic and Larry Bird. Um, how are you doing today, John? Doing great. Awesome. So first, let's start out in the high school level. You mm-hmm. played at Blacksburg High School, if that's correct. Yes. And you played cross country and basketball. Right. And you were stars in both of those? Uh, I would say that I was a good basketball player. I was better at track and cross country. I was first team All-State in both and held the state uh, the school record for Blacksburg for the, the two mile from the age of 14 all the way through graduation. And how did you, when it came to basketball, when did you make that jump of knowing that you should focus primarily on basketball? Mm-hmm. Well, growing up in Blacksburg and Virginia Tech, uh, basketball has always been extremely popular. And my father and mother were English teachers, but my father uh, bought season tickets for basketball and football and took us to the games, even though I'm sure he didn't have a great deal of interest. Uh, but some of the, the teams back in the 60s and, and early 70s were really entertaining, and they were, they were people I really uh, emulated and wanted to be like. So uh, I just love the game, and um, I wanted to be a college basketball player uh, so that I could be a high school coach and ultimately a college coach. And you were the Blacksburg high, in the Blacksburg High School class of 1974. Right. And when you decided to play college basketball, how did you get the head coach at the time? Um, was it Don, Dan DeVoe? Don DeVoe. Don DeVoe. Mm-hmm. How did you get his attention in high school? Well, um, I didn't get his attention in high school. I, I was, as I said, a, a, a good player, but not a great player. There was really no reason for me to, to ever make a college basketball team like Virginia Tech, except I'm extremely uh, diligent and focused. And uh, when I decide that I want to do something, uh, I knock down barriers any way I can to get there. So um I wanted to try out for the team. Um, as a senior in high school, uh, I made the decision that this is what I wanted to do. So instead of running cross country the fall of my senior year, I made the decision that I was really going to focus on basketball. There was always overlap between the seasons, so I missed the first couple of weeks of basketball practice with cross country. So this allowed me to really focus my time. So every afternoon I went to the uh, the uh, Coliseum, practiced in the back gyms with, with players. Uh, I ran. I, I used to practice my skills, uh, throwing the basketball against the wall hundreds of times a day, uh, dribbling, uh, getting into shape, and, and it really paid off for me. I was a better player as a senior than I was 
as a junior and sophomore. And um, so I found out when the tryouts were for the team. And um, at the time, they did not have a JV team, but they took extra players um, that would help out with the varsity. So at the time that I tried out the fall of 1974, um, they were going to take 20 players. And I did my best. I ended up being the 22nd player. And I was cut. But then I got a call back the next day saying that the 21st and the 20th players had both dropped off because they were, they were upset about not being able to get to play much. So I moved up to number 20. And uh, I told Don DeVoe years later uh, when we coached together, uh, he didn't really understand how this, that decision to take me as a 20th player on the team had changed the trajectory of my life. It gave me so many opportunities. And so as a freshman, um, I got to play so little that I would sit on the, on the bench and take notes and write down the plays and listen to what the coaches said. And then there would be opportunities. So at the, at the end of the practice, uh, the coach would make the players uh, run 25 laps around the gym. Well, they had been playing for, for three hours already, and they were very tired, and I had done nothing. <laughs> so, you know, playing on my track and cross-country background, I, I would take off and just sprint around the, the gym. And the other players would, would try to grab my jersey, grab my pants to slow <laughs> me down, and sometimes I would lap them three and four times, you know, in the 25 laps. So that, that got the coach's attention, and uh, he always liked me because of the – uh, how, how hard I worked and uh, a very hard-headed player. That's really cool. Um, also, when you played at Virginia Tech, were there any really big names that you played with? Mm -hmm. Or since, was Virginia Tech, did any sort of opponents that Virginia Tech played at the time, did you play any other any good players that maybe went to the NBA? Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I'm sure that we did. I'm not sure I can remember all of them, but the, the teams that I played on uh, we're just following the NIT championship in 72. So Dave Sensiball and and uh, Duke Thorpe were a couple of the more popular players that I played with later on. I actually coached with Duke Thorpe later on, and he was uh, like I, I think he led the nation in field goal percentage. Uh, Wayne Robinson was one that uh, later on was a, a good friend and a really good player. Uh, he played, I think, uh, with the Lakers. And uh, interesting because he was only about six foot four when he was in high school and he grew five inches really? by the time he graduated from high school and uh, became six nine. Uh, and so he was a great player. But we had some very good teams. In 76, uh, we made it to the NCAA tournament. Uh, uh, the, uh, there were only 32 teams accepted, and we were able to, to play a game at Notre Dame against Western Michigan. Unfortunately, we lost, um, but uh, we had some great teams back then. And then you graduated college, and mm -hmm. what were your plans? You said mm -hmm. you wanted to be a coach, mm -hmm. and did you go through with that? How? What happened? Right, I did. Uh, my, my major at Virginia Tech was uh, physical education. We called it HPER, so physical education. Uh, recreation and, and health. And uh, my parents were both English teachers at Virginia Tech, so it was a natural for me to, to take some English classes. And I actually got a, a minor and later on got a major in that too. Uh, so um, that was a natural thing. And after graduating, I did my, I did my student, student teaching in Roanoke at uh, William Fleming High School and then had an opportunity to go back there and coach the JV team and work as a physical education instructor. Did that for a year, and then I moved to southwest Virginia uh, to Wise, 
uh, County and became the head basketball coach at J.J. Kelly High School in Wise and taught English for, for a year. And then uh, you, I heard you coached with Don DeVoe when he went to Tennessee. That's mm-hmm. correct. Right. And how long How long was that? Okay. Um, after I, I, I did one year in Wise, Virginia, and uh, in 1980, uh, Don DeVoe had actually the year before. In 79, he had gone to, um, uh, to Tennessee, and in 1980, there was a position that opened up, and he asked me to come down and coach with him. So in 1980, uh, my wife and I were getting married. We did that and moved on to Knoxville. So I started as a um, what they called a volunteer assistant, which was an unpaid position, and worked about 15 hours a day for free for two years um, during the basketball season and some of the times in the, in the off season. But after two years, I had an opportunity to move up to a uh, a different position, and I was involved in a lot of uh, marketing uh, th- opportunities like running the basketball camps, uh, setting up clinics, uh, organizing the recruiting trips. Uh, at that point, I started scouting opponents. Uh, one of my stories about scouting and my my first game, I came back and told the guys about this guy that I thought was really going to be a great player. And it ended up being Carl Malone, who was only 18 years old at the time, but he was 6'9", 260 pounds. And it was obvious that he was going to be a great player. And the other funny story about that, my second game, I went to scout Navy and came back with a scouting report. We ended up beating them, but found out uh, the next year that they had a player named David Robinson that had been on that team and had not gotten on my scouting report. Well, the reason was David Robinson was only six foot five at the time as a freshman at Navy, and he grew seven inches and became an NBA star. Yeah, he was a great player for the Spurs. He, he was, but he didn't get to play a minute when he was a freshman <laughs> for Navy. That's good for maybe anyone who maybe think that they don't have the chance to be a really good player, whether that mm-hmm. is maybe being a freshman in college and not getting playing time, mm-hmm. or maybe a freshman in high school and thinking mm-hmm. that you don't really have what it takes. Mm-hmm. There's always chances to grow, whether that's grow mm-hmm. literally, mm-hmm. grow physically, or just grow with your skills as a, as a basketball player. You right. always got to be sort of into it. You always got to be determined. Mm-hmm. Right. And then after Tennessee, you worked with Converse. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Right. I worked at uh, Tennessee for four years. And again, um, uh, the last two years, uh, I, I started getting involved in some marketing kind of positions uh, and, and enjoyed that part of that. I'd never had business classes and never had any marketing classes, but I found that I enjoyed it. And then part of the job for the last two years was I had a part-time position at a at a local bank, and that was set up through the university. And I, I worked the job and learned some things and uh, found that I was pretty good in, in uh, at business. So I enjoyed that. Uh, so I started thinking about that I'd like to do something different. And at the time, uh, Converse uh, sponsored the University of Tennessee and Don DeVoe. Um, and so he did promotions for the company and, and we wore the Converse product and things like that. So one of the guys that covered the uh, basketball games for the Southeastern Conference was Joe Dean. And uh, Joe Dean uh, had connections. I think he was uh, maybe an assistant athletic director at uh, Louisiana State. LSU, and he was also a vice president with Converse Shoe Company. 
And so I knew him a little bit as he covered our games, and certainly Don DeVoe knew him very well also. And I, I talked with uh, Don uh, and told him that I really thought maybe this was a good time for me to consider uh, doing something different and to move into business. And I thought I would like to, to try to see about working with Converse Shoe Company. So he put the two of us together, and um, I had an interview with the, uh, the regional manager with Converse, uh, at the time, I had started getting interested in computers, and this was very early on, and um, we used computers to try to analyze some of our statistics, and we used it for doing direct mail, and I had taught myself how to do things, and I ended up teaching other people how to do things within the athletic department to help us with our recruiting. So in 1983, I bought my first computer, which was called a comportable computer. It was like one of the early versions of the laptop, but it weighed 26 pounds and it cost probably almost four times as much as a laptop would cost now. But I wanted to do some things and start a little business and started working on the computer. So uh, when the regional manager with Converse came over to interview me in Knoxville, I had my computer set up in the basement and uh, we just started chatting and I told him about that and he asked me to show him what I did. And uh, so in, in 1984, I was uh, uh, doing word processing and I was doing spreadsheets and uh, mail merges and things like that on my computer. And he looked at that and he said, I don't think there's anybody in our company that knows how to do what you're doing. And so he hired me and I moved to North Carolina to start there. And uh, so we, we worked in, uh, in sales, uh, sales and promotions in North Carolina for about three years. Uh, I covered the entire state, lived in the center of the state. Um, and in addition to the sales responsibilities, we had promotional responsibilities. So I worked with the University of North Carolina basketball team. Uh, we would always, we made their shoes uh, special in, uh, in Lumberton, North Carolina. So they had specially made shoes. And um, one of the interesting stories, and this was just before my time, but I, I wish I still had these. Michael Jordan obviously played for North Carolina. And before I got there, um, the, the, the people would always um, uh, fit up the players. And Michael said to, uh, to the fellow that I worked with, um, I wonder if I can get you to make me a pair of shoes that would instead of being below the ankle or being far above like a high top, I'd like it to come just above my ankle. Is that the Converse Fast Break? No, well, no, um, that's a different shoe. Um, but no, uh, this was called the Pro Leather, and we referred to it as the Dr. J at the time, but it came in a low cut and a high cut. And, and Michael asked, without really knowing what it was, about a mid cut, which is extremely popular right now. But if we hadn't been special making the shoes, we never could have done that for him. But as it ended up, we did. And in my garage in North Carolina, and I don't remember how I got these, I had six pairs of Michael Jordan's original mid-cut shoes. At and, North Carolina. At North Carolina, in colors, you know, the school colors and things like that. And somehow I misplaced those, or when I moved to Massachusetts, I lost them. But anyway, that was the first mid-cut basketball shoe because they were always either low cuts or high cuts at the time. And it started with Michael Jordan in Lumberton, North Carolina. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. That was probably a sad day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if you look up something like that on eBay, I mean, those shoes probably would have been worth $5,000 a pair right now. Oh, my. Mm -hmm. And when you were working in North Carolina still, was it just basketball or was it other? other? All, all sports. So I worked with uh, some of the football teams. I worked with uh, uh, the women's basketball.
if a team, uh, let's say that it's a baseball team and they were going to have um, uh, have to order 36 pairs of shoes, I would give them about six pairs free and then they would buy the rest. So we would hope that they buy the exposure we could get. Uh, Converse at the time really spent more of their money on promotions than they did advertising and that changed later on and we'll talk about that. Um, around 1987, the Converse Chuck Taylors, and I think most of you will know what I'm talking about, uh, Converse is owned by Nike now, uh, but at the time, all of the Chuck Taylors were made in Lumberton, North Carolina. It was uh, just south of Raleigh, and they were making about 16 million pairs a year. The problem with the, the Chuck Taylors was that they would become very popular and everybody would have to have a pair. And then once everybody had a pair, nobody wanted a pair again. <laughs> so if you're, if you're doing manufacturing, that's not a good thing. If you've got a factory, you want the production to be pretty consistent. And that was a real problem. But in 1987, uh, they were very popular. And I had an idea about something. And uh, I knew a lady from my coaching experience at Tennessee uh, who was uh, a director of a, uh, it was called Evening Magazine in, in, in uh, Greensboro at the time. And uh, she had covered our basketball team at Tennessee. So um, I contacted her and I said, I've got an idea of something. The Chuck Taylors are very, very popular. They're manufactured in North Carolina. I think this would be an area that would uh, be of interest to people. And she agreed. And I said, how about if we have a local junior high school and we have my sporting goods dealer and uh, you can interview me you can interview my my dealer and you can interview some of these kids at the junior high school and ask them what they think about the chuck taylors and i did nothing else except that it didn't cost me a pair of shoes or anything um, so the lady set it up and she went to the junior high school and they filmed that went to my dealer filmed that and then they interviewed me about the history of the chuck taylors and uh, the way the evening magazine worked at the time was that they would have a local spot and they would cover that um, of local interest. But it's actually a national show. So they have an evening magazine in Los Angeles and Dallas and Detroit and Chicago was, and Boston. What was the show called? I think it was called either PM Magazine or Evening Magazine. So it was about a half an hour of, of local interest. And then they would take some stories and then they would do national. Certain things would go national. My little spot went national. And so these cute little girls, junior high school girls in Greensboro, North Carolina, with their southern accents, talking about how popular the Chuck Taylors were, was shown in Dallas and Chicago and Detroit and Boston and Los Angeles. So that really caught the eye of the marketing people at Converse in Boston. And uh, I had done well in sales. Um, I had a background as a, high, as a college player, as a college coach. So um, uh, the position as a marketing manager for the leather basketball shoe line uh, opened up and they asked me if I would consider moving to Massachusetts. I uh, didn't really think about the cost of living very much. And um, uh, the, the cost of our house up there was almost four times as much as it was in North Carolina. And they paid me just a little bit more than I was making before, but it was a great experience. It was almost like getting a, an MBA in marketing, uh, but it's on the job training. So I learned a lot and I think I brought some good things to the equation too. So 
Man, all, all the vibes I'm getting is that you've met Converse's guy many times. Oh, well, it, it was a great company. You know, having grown up in uh, Blacksburg and Virginia Tech and really just loving the game of basketball, was, it was a wonderful opportunity just to be associated uh, with that ESPN um in the last six or eight months did a multi uh, evening show about the history of basketball and I just really enjoyed that so much it's a great game it goes back well over a hundred years and uh, you know just all the great things that happened with the basketball um, and you know, all the history and Converse was very involved in, in the whole growth of that and then so you went to Massachusetts for Converse mm-hmm. as the marketing manager mm-hmm. and do you remember any like really big marketing I guess, marketing campaigns that you made or any sort of big names that you've worked with? Mm -hmm. When I got there, I had been involved with selling a a program called the Weapons Program that involved Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. It was a East Coast, West Coast thing, uh, the Lakers versus the Celtics, uh, white versus black, uh, rural versus city. All of these components came together, and uh, you know that that was a program that was kicked off in about 1986, and it did very well, and it got good attention. Um, and so I, I I jumped at kind of in the middle of the program on that. Uh, basketball shoes were extremely popular at that time, and it was really a lifestyle thing. So if you if you found a a high school kid and went to his closet it wouldn't be an uh, it would be very common to say six or seven pairs of basketball shoes that's what they wore every day and so uh, this is a very influential thing um, converse had um, a, a relationship with the nba and so we were the official shoe of the nba and so we we made uh, shoes with nba logos it it went pretty well uh, but it was a really fun experience for me because I was the contact with that, and we paid the NBA a royalty, and I learned about royalties and how things like that worked. And uh, David Stern was the head of the NBA at the time. Uh, at least one time, I was leading a meeting of 25 people, and David Stern was sitting in my meeting. Awesome. Um, so we had some really good times to to learn some of those kinds of things. Uh, Magic and Johnson, uh, Magic and, and Larry were both under contract, and and we did uh, advertising campaigns. So I flew to California a couple of times to help with that. Um, but but around '88 and and into '89, uh, uh, Larry Bird uh, started to taper off with his skills, and Magic was starting to get even better. Both had been sharing either either year uh, MVP honors, but around '88, uh, Magic was featured on the cover of uh, GQ magazine, and I, I had an idea, uh, and I checked, uh, I talked with the folks at Converse, and I said, I really think this is a time that we separate Larry and and Magic, and to do something special with Magic, and the idea that I had was to uh, develop a more of a lifestyle program around Magic Johnson. Uh, They said, that sounds like a good idea, but there was not really a lot of detail on that. But if you're going to do a program like that, you really need to have um, uh, marketing and royalty rights for all the different components, which would be not only shoes, but also clothes. It would be uh, bags or accessories or whatever like that. And at the time, uh, Magic had an agent uh, named Lon Rosen, and Lon was in charge of 
royalties that Magic got. And one of the things he had was a very small t-shirt line in California. And so I flew to California and I met with Lon and I talked with the people that had the line right there and negotiated to take back the royalties for all of the things that Magic had. So all of the uh, anything that he had as far as uh, clothing or bags or socks or shoes, things like that, he would get a royalty on. So I got the idea of doing this lifestyle program and started talking with our folks. We started doing some design work and uh, and it really hit off. It looked like it was going to be an exciting opportunity that would be an appendage of really the leather basketball line, which is more uh, more performance oriented. And uh, uh, one of the, the fun things I did in terms of getting that program off the ground was I made a sales presentation in Chicago to the uh, the buyer of Foot Locker at the time, who was the the biggest buyer of athletic shoes in the world with the basketball line being the biggest. And uh, so Magic Johnson and I together made a sales presentation. You were with Magic Johnson? Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. So it was my presentation and he helped. I organized it. So we did that. So that was really fun. That was a room of about 30 people, all of the Foot Locker people, all of the uh, the president, the vice president of Converse were all there too. But just a really fun experience. And and it kicked off. Uh, ultimately, the company decided that it was, it was going to be big. So they put a different person in charge of that. And I went back to focusing on the leather basketball. But it went from zero to $40 million in one year. So it was a, it was a great idea. So... So your, your Converse is $400 million in. <laughs> no, no, no. Nothing like that. Just just had a couple of good ideas. And uh, did you meet Larry Bird as well? Yes, yes. Which one was your favorite? Well, you know, I spent more time with Magic uh, because of this other program. I'd met both of them, but uh, probably Magic at the time was really a fascinating character. And when you were working with Converse... Could you sort of see and predict the rise of Nike and Michael Jordan and his brand? Yeah, it was clear that Nike was, uh, their, their sales were starting to go uh, up very, very quickly. Uh, they were a young company. Uh, they had no baggage. Uh, you know, one of the things about Converse was uh, they they were perceived as, as a very old, kind of a stodgy company. And I think that's that was, you know, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's not. In this case, it was starting to drag them down a little bit, and that's part of the reason to try to develop the Magic Johnson line and to do something with lifestyle. But, um, yeah, uh, Nike had uh, lots of dollars from all the sales that they had. They were able to go back and do the Magic, the, the uh, Jordan program and really throw a lot of dollars at that. So you got out. Of Converse at what year? Like what year? 1989, I think it was, and uh, worked uh, in the area as a national sales manager for a couple of small sporting goods companies. Uh, did a lot of travel, and in '91, I made the decision to to transition back to the the area where I grew up. And my girls were nine, six, nine, six, and four at the time, so it was just a good time to come back to Blacksburg. So in the early '90s, we came back. And when you came back to Blacksburg, what did you do? Were you retired or? No, no. Uh, I, I started uh, working with a company in the packaging business. Uh, I had uh, a background in graphics because of my marketing and the company was trying to grow with that. And uh, about 10 years later, I started my own company to do um, uh, packaging, but also uh, go into some other areas. And about 10 years ago, um, 
my wife and I bought a property management company. Uh, so we own that and run that also. So I still uh, do packaging and I do um, real estate sales and uh, rentals. And I still play basketball and tennis and I hike and I ride my bicycle. So I'm very active at 63. Um, so when it comes to hiking, I heard this one rumor that you hiked Mount Kilimanjaro. Right, right. So nine years ago, a friend of mine um, had scheduled a trip to uh, Africa with his family. Uh, they were going to go on a, um, on a on some mission trips and to do some things and to go out and see the animals. Uh, it was unfortunate that uh, South Africa didn't allow him in because of his passport. You have to have a clear uh, page in your passport. So they ended up not doing that. But he's really very interested in in um, in Africa. I knew very little about it. But at Christmas uh, nine years ago, uh, he said, I'm thinking about doing a hike in Africa. No, he said, actually, what he said was, I'm thinking about hiking Mount Kilimanjaro. And when he asked me about that, I didn't know what continent it was in. I didn't know it was in Africa. I thought it was probably in Europe. Um, and then his wife said, John, he's really serious. And we started looking into it, and it's 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 not without its dangers. There's there's lots of people that die every year trying to hike Mount Kilimanjaro, and lots of people that are in really good shape don't make it to the top. But we started, um, uh, and for about eight months, we trained very hard. We were hiking uh, eight to sixteen miles every week. I had a backpack uh, that I used to load with with sand, and uh, it weighed forty pounds. And I'd go to the weight club and. Uh, do the stairmaster um, and hold my breath and just actually just breathe through my my nose instead of my mouth and um, so uh, September of uh, nine years ago uh, we we made it to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro almost twenty thousand feet above sea level. Do you know how long it took when it came to hiking? Yeah, it uh, it was uh, four and a half days up and it was a day and a half down. So in a day and a half coming down, we covered about forty five miles. On the way up, um, once you get above 15,000 feet, there's almost no oxygen. It's extremely difficult. And the last day was a Thursday night, and it was a full moon, and we started hiking at, at 10 o'clock at night, and we hiked until 6 o'clock the next morning. So we went from 15,000 uh, up to the top at 19,000, and uh, got there at 6 o'clock in the morning. Well... That is, that's that's everything I really would like to talk about. Do you have any other stories when it came to Converse or any other cool stories? No, I think that's it. You know, I just I love the game of basketball. I think it's by far the greatest game that was ever invented. It's uh, it's so much fun to look at how it developed and you know to see the skills that the players have now, the size, uh, the the flexibility uh, that they have. Uh, but it's just such a great game that I I still enjoy playing whenever I can. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast with me, and that's all I really have to say. Thank you. And that completes the second episode of Prodigy Podcast, hosted by Paul Duncan. And just an outro after this, don't forget, you can now listen on Apple Podcasts, and the schedule is going to be every single Friday. So look forward to notifications if you want to follow Prodigy Podcast on Twitter or Instagram, and I'm looking forward to it. See y'all.